Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello and welcome to A City of Champions, a seven-part podcast series diving into each individual game of the Cleveland Cavaliers 2016 Finals run. The Athletics' Jason Lloyd is our guest to discuss Game 5, a.k.a. the game where Kyrie and LeBron lost their minds and dropped 82 combined points against a draymond Dubs team to pull the series to 3-2. Green and James drawing at each other while play continues. We did not suspend Draymond Green. We upgraded and act on the floor to a flagrant one. Having already had three flagrant foul points throughout the playoffs, that put him over the limit, and he was automatically suspended for the next game. You know, it's a man's league, and I've heard a lot of bad things on that court, but at the end of the day, it stays on the court. We're all competitive people. Obviously, people have feelings, and people's feelings get hurt, even if they're called a bad word. Um, I guess his feelings just got hurt. Sold out Oracle Arena as we're set for the tip of the starting lineup. Some changes. Kevin Love back in the starting lineup after coming off the bench in Game 4. And because of Draymond Green's suspension, Andre Iguodala, his second start. Well, they say closeout games are the toughest ones to win. For Golden State, made a little tougher. Without their all-star green. The finals, no team ever come back from down 3-1 as Curry, one dribble, hits a three. Kyrie Irving gets inside, kicks it out to J.R. Smith. His corner three is good. Livingston sees an opening and throws it down. Wow. Irving, crossover, pull up, got it. Thompson way outside. Bang! From about 25 feet, it's a three-point lead. James fakes, James drives, James finishes, and the foul. Off to the races, drive past Irving, gets inside, layup blocked by James. 15 turnovers for Golden State. Irving, bank shot is good, and a foul. Kyrie Irving does it again. James against Rush, leans in, tried to draw the foul, got him up, count it, and one. 40 points for LeBron James, and the lead balloons to 15. Cleveland forces a game six. What a road victory for the Cleveland Cavaliers as the NBA Finals will return to Cleveland on Thursday night. Welcome to the Chase Down Podcast, part of the Blue Wired Network, brought to you by our friends betonline.ag. I'm your host, Justin Rowan, and today we are talking about Game 5 of the 2016 NBA Finals. With me today is my co-host, Carter Rodriguez. Carter, how's it going, buddy? It's the Kyrie game. It's the sneaky LeBron game that could actually compare to Game 6. Uh, in terms of total mm-hmm. mastery. I forgot about that on this rewatch. I'm really excited to jump into this one. I'm excited too, and I'm very excited to uh, announce our very special guest for this podcast, author of The Blueprint from The Athletic, Jason Lloyd. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm great, guys. It was funny. When, when I first connected with Carter about which game and everything, and he had offered game five, it was actually the one that I had like the least recollection of for some reason. Like, all the antics and theatrics, and we'll get into that, that led up to Game 5 are vivid in my head. 
But the actual game five itself, I had to sit down today and rewatch it. I spent probably about 45 minutes to an hour going through it again. And a lot of stuff came back to me. But that was the one game that for whatever reason, I mean, yeah, we all know that LeBron and Kyrie played out of their minds, but some of the nuance and everything. Normally, I have a really good of that entire 2016 series. I can remember so much of it. And that was the one game where I was like, man, I got to go back and watch that. And and it was it's fun to go back and relive some of the stuff. I, I enjoyed watching. You guys were in the arena. What's it? How, is it a little odd, like rewatching a game, hearing the call? It's just such a different environment, right? It, it's funny you said that. Yes, it was because I'd never, I, nobody watches Game Five. You know what I mean? I, I, I'd never <laughs> no, seen no. it. So to watch the broadcast back and and to listen to the play by play and everything, it, it was fun. Yeah, because that's it's something I you know to this day I don't think I've I've watched snippets of Game Seven, but I haven't watched the entire Game Seven broadcast even to this day. I, like I, I lived it. I don't need to watch it. I I, mm, just, yeah. I got that fresh in my head, and that goes for all those games really. So it's it's fun to go back and and get refreshed a little bit. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And then to hear, uh, you know, Jeff and, and Mike Green and Mark Jackson, of course, are, are so phenomenal at what they do. And, and to see some of the things that they saw that I didn't see, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was fun for me. I had a good day going back and watching. It, it's funny because this is a series where I, I think that crew overall did a fantastic job. Like you look at six and seven, and they were basically flawless. This was the one game where they had a couple awkward moments. Breen had his, I think, lone mess up in the entire series where he said that Tristan Thompson hit a 28th foot three when it was Clay oh. Thompson and Jeff Van Gundy had one of the most awkward broadcast moments I can remember when he said I don't know what his mama calls him but I'm a call him and then paused and then said Clay Thompson it's <laughs> <laughs> like I that. you were going somewhere else there and my god <laughs> I'm pretty sure his mama has called him that. He, yeah. he thought better of whatever joke he was about to make <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well that's the thing with that with live tv man there is no erase button so you gotta be very careful about everything that comes out of your mouth good 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 for uh jvg for uh keeping it pg so i yeah. do want to ask just starting off because holy shit it was loud and it was venomous in that in that arena every time lebron touched the ball huge boos yeah. there was one stretch where there was one play where uh when azili uh fouled tristan very very hard and there was a flagrant review when he fouled mm -hmm. him hard the crowd burst thompson the offensive rebound and thompson knocked down and they'll look at that i'm sure they were bloodthirsty. What was it like being in the venue in the wake of the Draymond suspension? Yeah, so it's obviously that's the best place to start with this. And and you're right. Before we even get to Game Five, before we even get to the arena, you know, you have to go through the the lead up to that, and, and obviously the Draymond suspension. Mm -hmm. And I'll even go back to the Eastern Conference Finals when we were we basically watched. Draymond kicked Stephen Adams in the nuts with the Cavs players. We were yeah. we were at a real sports bar in Toronto. Uh, you know, me, Varden, and uh, McMenamin, our crew, and they had a uh, real sports bar in Toronto. is just a fantastic sports bar to watch a game. It's the biggest, I believe, it's still the biggest screen in North America. And there's a there's a middle tier, and the Cavs had basically rented out or cordoned off that middle tier. And it was just happenstance. We we got there, we walked in, and they were already there watching the game. So we were literally like probably 15, 20 feet in front of them during the whole game. So we left them alone. You know, we didn't go up there, but we would converse as we're walking by, going to the bathroom or whatever else. We would say hey to some of the guys and 
And so we watched the, the Draymond play on, on Steven Adams, which of course led to the technical and then talking to those guys the next day about it. And you know, I remember LeBron saying like, that's not a basketball play. And I said, you, you just wear cups for situations like that. And he's like, no, you know, I don't, that's not a basketball play. That's not something that you normally have to worry about. So, okay, let's fast mm-hmm. forward then to uh, obviously the, the punch Draymond punches LeBron and the, at the end of game four and the suspension. Well, in the locker room in game four, LeBron was incensed after game four. He was, he was irate at the officiating because he said Steph fouled him late in the first quarter, uh, which would have been his second foul, and they would have had to pull him from the game, and the, re- the officials didn't call it, and he was furious. Mm-hmm. And I remember having a conversation with him in the locker room about it, and I said, I'm going to talk to you at the podium. I'm going to ask you about this. He's like, you can ask whatever you want. I'm going to be calmed down. I'm not going to you know, say anything then. But just how angry he was that, that he felt like that was such a huge moment and the entire game would have shifted had they got Steph out of the game uh, on foul trouble. Then they lose the game. They go down 3-1. You know, they hadn't come back. Warriors hadn't lost three in a row since, I think, 2013 or something insane. It was like almost 300 games. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, since they'd lost three in a row. So the Cavs knew what was at stake and what, what odds were they were facing. And, you know, I remember talking to Kevin about it in the locker room after four and said, if you could just get five, and this is before we knew if Draymond was going to be suspended or not, but if, if you could just get five, there's no way you're going to lose six at home. And he goes, no, no chance. And I said, I'll take my odds with that guy. And I pointed at LeBron. I said, I would take my odds with that guy in a game seven over anybody else on the planet. And Kevin's like, for sure. Absolutely. So it all came down to game five. Like they had to win. To to me, this was the turning point of the entire series was winning game five, finding a way to get it back to Cleveland. And I'll go so far as to say, I know we're going to focus on five here. But when Steph threw his mouth guard at the end of six, I said to everyone around me, this is happening. The Cavs are going to win this. The Warriors are melting down. The Warriors never thought that they'd be in this position. Uh, this is happening. The Cavs are going to win this. They're going to go back to Oracle and they're going to win this in seven. And I told that to members of the Cavs. I told that to everybody. Like, this is actually like, prepare yourself because this is going to happen. But you, but they had to win five to get there. And so the Draymond suspension came down. I was traveling to San Francisco and I remember I had landed. I believe I had landed and I was in the Uber going to, I was going straight to Oracle. Um, for interviews because the Warriors were practicing when the suspension came down, when the Draymond suspension came down and the Warriors were furious. They felt like LeBron got exactly what he wanted. I remember talking to a couple of the, of the Warriors players after the formal interview thing. And they were, they were incensed that the league would, mm-hmm. would go along with this and they would actually suspend Draymond. And, you know, when Clay says what he says about it's a man's league and everything else, it's, it's funny because, there's a lot of moments where you have you have interaction and downtime before the formal what you see on TV, like you know the press conference that you see on TV. There's there's a lot of instances where we have interactions with these guys before that, whether it's post game in a locker room. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm talking LeBron. We had a 10 minute conversation about the officiating after Game Four, and now here we are. Now it's on TV. And now he and I have to act like we didn't just talk about this for the last 10 minutes in the locker room. <laughs> so, you know, that's just one of those little behind the curtain things that happens all the time. So Clay says what he says. Now, if you remember Maurice Spates, Maurice, freak, who is Maurice Spates? 
I, I was just about to bring that up. I had forgotten that he had tweeted about the, the baby, baby bottle. bottle. Yeah, I'm like, who the hell are you? You are really, of all people, you are going to come and, and like poke LeBron like that. So, yeah. so Clay says what he says about it's a man's league and everything else. And I can't remember why, but I remember that there was a pause between the Warriors getting off and the Cavs coming up for their locker room. Or for, I'm sorry, for their, for their interview session. And I remember LeBron was sitting on the floor with his back on the bleachers, and he was just like dribbling basketball, dribbling basketball, dribbling basketball. And I was making small talk with him, and I almost said to him, yo, you won't believe what Clay just said. But I didn't. I didn't tell him because I knew it would mm-hmm. come up, and I wanted it to be like in a, a pure reaction. And I'm so right. glad that I didn't say anything to him because when Bill Livingston asked him, that moment at the podium was – phenomenal like where LeBron like (laughs) because LeBron is so poised and polished and it's hard to catch him off guard with anything and Bill asked him the question and LeBron's like wait what no I'm not what did you say Clay said Clay said I guess he just got his feelings hurt (laughs) and and Livy repeats the question and LeBron you could see he just wanted to come out of his skin oh my goodness Um, the transcript will support that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he like broke character for for a split second and then he's like nope i'm gonna take the high road i'm gonna take the high road it's so hard yeah. it's so hard to take the high road i'm gonna do it again uh i'm, I'm not gonna comment on, on what clay said because i know where it can go from this sit in um at the end of the day we gotta go we gotta show up and, and play better tomorrow night i'm taking the high road again and just that moment like wh- if you're the warriors hey who the hell do you think you are and b what were you thinking to do that yeah, it was so funny to see the the quick switch back to kind of corporate LeBron mm-hmm. and uh, managing the situation. It's funny. I, I, I what you said. I, I think the Warriors understood the importance of Game Five as well because you look at the start of the game. They were really, really sharp off the bat. They wanted this to be the kill shot. They yes. wanted to win without Draymond. And I think they they had an understanding of you know what this series has been totally different in Cleveland. Game Four. Or could have gone either way, even though the final score didn't really indicate that. It was a lot closer than people remember. Yep. And they just, they missed some open shots and, and the energy they came out with, the crowd had, they really, really could have put the Cavs in a hole early on. And it was very fortunate that Kyrie and LeBron were hot from the beginning and, and kind of bounce back in that moment. But it's just so fascinating to me that they would understand the importance of that game and that LeBron's got his back against the wall and they would still poke the bear in that way. It just, it, it, it seems like such an ill-advised decision. Well, if you, I mean, you know, they won 73 games. They mm-hmm. beat this team in five the year before, or I'm sorry, in six the year before. And I, I think that they were just feeling themselves. Obviously, they were feeling themselves a lot and they felt like they had it, they had it wrapped up. And the thing that struck me today when I was going back watching the game again was if you take the emotion out of it, you just watch a game, the Cavs control the entire second half. And I don't think I realized that. I certainly didn't realize it at the time. Like we're focused on Kyrie playing out of his mind, LeBron playing out of his mind. Mm-hmm. Kevin had a trash game. And it's kind, of, <laughs> it's kind of funny that like, you know, that's the game where Kevin should have lit it up because, you know, I had conversations. No with so many, exactly. I had so many conversations with people with the Cavs about like, I don't know what to do with Kevin. We don't know what to do with Kevin. We can't play Kevin. Kevin's unplayable. And I love Kevin. I have a great relationship with him. But they were saying, like, we can't play this guy because of the Draymond factor. He can't guard him. And, and that should have been the game for Kevin to blow up. 
and it didn't happen. And, you know, I, I saw a couple times where Clay was on him, and it, I, it just made me laugh because I remember the Cavs saying it would drive him crazy when Clay would switch on to Kevin and Kevin would try and post him up. And they're like, dude, you can't post him up. Stop trying because everyone thinks that they can post up Clay, and he's so strong and he throws that forearm into, the, into your back and you can't go. You can't go anywhere. And it would drive the Cavs crazy every time Kevin would try and post up Clay. That was for four years. Like, every time mm-hmm. it happened, it would drive them nuts. They're like, stop trying to post up Clay. You think you have a mismatch. You don't. You're not going to get them. But so that struck me was just like, that should have been the game for Kevin to go nuts, and it really didn't happen. Uh, it, it, but the Cavs just controlled the entire second half. Like, it, and that's, that's, that's LeBron. I mean, and, and Kyrie, of course. He was such a magnificent what – a, what a game. And to be able to, like, take the deadline out of it, because, you know, I'm at the beacon at the time. I'm writing on deadline, so you can't – you're not really watching the game. You're just trying to survive when you're in the newspaper with that late of start on the East coast. But to be able to watch LeBron control the entire game and just the way that the the Cavs controlled the entire second half, I think the Warriors cut it to six late in the fourth, midway in the fourth. And then they didn't score for like three minutes after that. The Cavs just controlled the entire second half. Kyrie for all the things that, drove you crazy at least me and I know a lot of people in the Cavs that drove them crazy about Kyrie the entire time he was in Cleveland it 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 paid off that night it was worth it for that night because he's going two on one three on one he's scoring over guys no matter who the Warriors put on him nobody could stay in front of him even when they had a hand in his face he's making shots over him that I mean you talk about the shot he hit in game seven that game five performance to me may have been I, – I, I'd say it's his best performance in a, Cavs, in a Cavs uniform. I can't think of a better one. Mm-hmm. And that's just real quick off the top of my head. But when you think about the stakes, down 3-1. His first ever elimination game as well. And you, you're right. The, the Warriors did cut it to six with uh, six minutes to go in the fourth. And Kyrie went on a 7-0 run in, in the span of a minute. Irving on the drive. Bank shot is good. Kyrie Irving again. Irving for three. Bang! Kyrie Irving from way downtown. At that point, the Warriors just went cold, and that cold streak extended from that fourth quarter in Game Five to the first quarter Starting in Game, game six. six. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, that's so Kyrie in this in the first half went eight of ten from the field. The third quarter, he went four of five from the field, and then in six minutes in the fourth quarter, he went he hit five shots. He went five Jeez. of seven before missing his last two. This was, I think, probably the best shot making I'll, I'll ever see. He scored 41 points on 24 shots yep. while only taking two free throws. That's that's, that's the number that's the most bonkers to me. There was no freebies for him in this game. Yeah. Yeah. Like, again, a guy who spends as much time in the lane as he does, you'd think he'd get to the line more than twice. I hadn't even yeah. realized <laughs> that until you just said that. That's crazy. So I think <laughs> that what I actually – I was going to save this conversation for later, but I think it's actually the right time uh, because – Kyrie was so amazing this game. I think a lot of people consider this the Kyrie game in a lot of ways. But I also don't think I've seen LeBron play as masterful and controlling of a game in the finals. Because you watch game seven, and it's not a perfect game. His jumper's off. uh, He's not always super efficient. He's overthinking. He's overpassing. This game, he was just in total control. James steps back. His jumper's been working tonight. Does again. James fakes. James drives. James finishes. And the foul. He finished with 41, 16, and 7 on 16 of 30 from the field. He hit four threes in this game. Actually, mm-hmm. most of a ton of his buckets were from jumpers in this game. Yep. Uh, three steals, three blocks. I think this is the best free safety LeBron ever played as a Cavalier. 
Who had the? And he had no assists in the first half. Like he was just, I'm, I'm going to score I'm on killer. these guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm creating opportunities off the rebounds. And then in the third quarter, he had six assists there. So it was, it, this is absolutely an underrated LeBron game. Here, and here's the question I want to ask, though: Who had a better game, LeBron or Kyrie? <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm going to say LeBron. I, I'm Isn't it LeBron. crazy that Kyrie? Because I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't seem possible given how good Kyrie was because in fairness to Kyrie, he's the one who iced this shit. Like yes. LeBron kept him at a distance, at a distance, at a distance. And then Kyrie just said, got it. I forgot yep. that LeBron started the fourth quarter on the bench, yep. which had, which, I mean, you can speak to this, Jason. That was always a disaster for this team. And this game, it was not. 100%. Every time LeBron went to the bench, his team would fall apart. Uh, and, you know, I thought RJ gave him big minutes. And then he had two boneheaded plays back to back. Uh, at the end of the, I think it was at toward the end of the third quarter, if I recall. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, they got just enough um, from from some other guys in that game to to allow him to allow LeBron to get a little bit of a blow at the start of the fourth quarter, and that's never, you know, I mean, talk about the guts. I, I I've always felt like Tyloo never gets enough credit. I think Tyloo is such a terrific coach. Mm-hmm. He's going to get another opportunity. The way he can command a locker room, the way he can kind of grab LeBron by the neck. And and get things out of him that he that other coaches can't, uh, and for him to have really the balls to set him for the start of the fourth quarter because that's the problem with LeBron. When you have him, all the all coaches talk about they're gonna they're gonna watch his minutes. And I'm talking during the regular season. We're gonna monitor his minutes. We're gonna try and keep him down. And then he's so great and he's so terrific and he's so phenomenal. You can't help yourself. And they all put him in the game and overplay him every single time. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, as we talk about this and what, what you said, what I said earlier about controlling the entire night, you know, it's funny, we just did for all-star weekend. Uh, we reached out to, I don't even know how many, we, we probably contacted over 50 people saying, give me your best LeBron story. And Draymond actually, it goes along with this, but Draymond referenced the 2018 Eastern conference finals when the Cavs fell behind, where'd they fall behind the Celtics? Was it three, two? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was 3-2. Uh, I, I think they were down 2-0 or 0-2, and then they were down, yeah. Whatever the deficit was, I can't remember now because I've been so focused on remembering 2016 for this podcast. <laughs> uh, he was talking to his high school coach, and his high school coach was like, it's over. Like, he's done. Brian ain't got back. Like, Cavs aren't coming back to the finals. You're going to face Boston. And Draymond told his high school coach, let me tell you how this is going to go. LeBron's going to walk the ball up the floor. He's gonna, he, LeBron's going to play the entire game. That's how he started. LeBron's going to play the entire game. He's going to walk the ball up the floor, and he's going to control the entire momentum of the game. Maybe it was game seven he was talking about. Maybe it was just game seven. Yeah. Um, and LeBron played all 48 in game six, so you're right. Okay. So that's like exactly how the script went. And I think that's what it was. I think it was six and seven back-to-back. And his coach called him. His, his coach texted Draymond and said, like, how did you know it was going to go this way? And Draymond's like, because he's the greatest. Like, who else could do that? Who else mm-hmm. could control, play an entire game and control the entire game? And he did that in this, watching back in game five. Did he play the entire game? No. But he, when he was out there, he was in complete control of the game. And that's why when you ask who had the better game, I would say it's LeBron. Because Kyrie's going to get his, and he's going to score. And he was marvelous. And they don't win the game without him. Clearly, they don't win this game without him. But for LeBron to do what he does at both ends of the floor, for him to control the entire tempo of the game, dictate what's going to happen, they played that game on his terms. And there are very, very few people who have ever played this game 
who can control any NBA game like that, let alone a game against a team that won 73 games in the regular season. Mm -hmm. No, I completely agree. And and what this game really was, it's funny looking back because both teams had a lot more depth than I think people gave them credit for. I know the Warriors certainly had the the strength and numbers thing, but RJ was giving them good minutes. It's funny looking at this game and you talked about how love didn't make a huge impact. Tristan wasn't that great in this one either when he had, pretty great finals overall only three offensive rebounds and you'd assume that he he would really excel in that area but it's so funny this is Kyrie and LeBron working off of each other about as well as they ever did in their tenure and it's funny looking back at it now because Kyrie has done so much to kind of self-sabotage his career (laughs) but those two they didn't necessarily set each other up often for easy buckets but the presence of both of them and them having trust in one another to run the offense, their two-man game that always created mismatches. And, and you saw later in the series, I mean, the biggest game for LeBron's legacy was Game 7, and he had the confidence, and Ty Lue had the confidence, to, to call that play for Kyrie. And LeBron's standing off to the side. And it, it's just so funny to see what could be if Kyrie was just a little less stubborn and a little less weird. But at A the little same more time, normal. Yeah. yeah, a little more normal, but at the same time, it, it might be one of those things where he, that weirdness made him as great as he was at the things that he did. Yeah, it's funny. As you were talking, I was just thinking that, like, it's a shame that Kyrie never just embraced everything that LeBron wanted to show him and, and sort of give him. And Kyrie hated the little brother thing. He hated mm-hmm. it. Never wanted to be oh, his little brother. I bet he brother. loved being asked if uh, LeBron was a father figure. Oh, my God. <laughs> I remember that. I, like, I remember that like it was yesterday. It was so awkward. Um, Tristan called LeBron a great father after the Chicago game. What? what? Yes, he did. Great father. Oh, a great father. father. Oh, I thought he's going oh, back. I, I interpreted that, that completely wrong. Okay. I thought you said he was a great father to him. I was like, what? <laughs> so bad. Um, yes, a father. Yeah, <laughs> it's not yeah. like he even like grew up without a dad in his. I know, I know. Yeah. yeah, it was that was, and then I, I, I mean, I really remember that question because Kyrie was like, "Wait, what?" And then yeah. he's like, "Oh, I, I know, I see how you meant it." And then like the questioner sort of rephrased it, and Kyrie's like, "Oh no, you really did mean it that way." <laughs> so, yeah. what type of parental role has he played for you and your teammates, LeBron? Oh, okay. So you. T- Parental role? He's been a he's been a, a great leader for us. I wouldn't. I have one father. I, that's my dad, Frederick Irving. <laughs> I, I grew up uh, essentially in a single parent family, and my father was the only one because his mom died when he was young. Yeah, yeah, that that was bad. Uh, but but Kyrie never, he just never embraced LeBron or really like there was so much that Ty wanted to do with him, and Ty tried so hard to connect with him and get through to him and. I mean, he went an entire playoff series without speaking to anybody. Oh. Like, and, and everyone just kind of got used to it. They're like, oh, that's just Kyrie. Like, just leave him alone. And eventually he'll mm-hmm. snap out of it or he'll, he'll come back around. And, and, and there were people on Twitter who were like, hey, you know, that's not, that's, that's not that bad. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know. Two Twitter experts. Oh, my God. <laughs> I got destroyed for years because, I like, you know, me and Winhurst, back when nobody was paying attention to the Cavs and they were awful, me and Winhurst were like, Man, this guy's weird. <laughs> There's just mm-hmm. he's he's crazy. There's something going on. And I would get crushed for it, but like, how dare you? You're just trying to stir the pot. Screw you. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now for like the rest of the world to see 
he really is crazy. There's just, just, just he, an odd bird. He's man. a different dude, man. He walks to his mm-hmm. own beat. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, he, he, he should take LeBron having that level of confidence because LeBron truly did. You, you hear how he talked about him after that game. And, I mean, they, they were the same way in 2017. And Kyrie certainly kind of said a lot of the right things publicly. But LeBron having that type of confidence in him, he, that's something that you have to earn. Yes. Uh, and I it mean, was hard won because I remember very well the game where LeBron basically took point guarding away from Kyrie. Portland. I think it was against Portland. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah, Portland. Uh, so, like, can you kind of speak to, like, the level of trust that they – I mean, obviously they never really – Kyrie never really wanted to gel off court, but can you kind of speak to the way that trust developed over time where LeBron uh, kind of trusted him to actually make the right play in these moments? Yeah, it, it was the Portland game their first year back. We were on the West Coast. And and that was, that was a, just a shit show of a trip because I think that's the trip where Dion declared he was Muslim for a day. That was oh, in, oh, I forgot about that. That was in Denver. We were in Denver when he declared he was Muslim. Um, we went. It's funny with West Coast trips, we could go city by city because we've done this before. Mm-hmm. Weird things happen when the Cavs are on the West Coast. Like Utah was the game. Kyrie had zero assists. Denver, Deion said he was Muslim. Um, Portland was the game that we're talking about now, where LeBron just stood in the corner and refused to participate. And watched <laughs> Kyrie and Dion just dribble themselves silly and then said afterwards, there's a lot of bad habits. We got to get up out of here. Phoenix was LeBron shoving Blatt out of the way of the official. Oh, the shove. Um, I'm telling you, like, you named the West Coast City. Kyrie had bed bugs in Oklahoma City. You named the city. <laughs> I'll give you something weird that happened there with the Cavs during that. Like, it's just weird things would happen all the time on west coast trips I, I can't explain it but some go ahead sometimes i wonder you know like you ever think like oh man our, this team's that i like is so weird and then you then part of your brain goes oh maybe everyone thinks their team is weird i'm pretty sure the Cavs are weird <laughs> no the Cavs are weird the Cavs are totally weird they, they it's just it's i mean I, they're it's weird funny. when it's good they're weird when it's bad they're just weird I, there's someone in the organization who who used to joke when LeBron was here about how like the the Cavs are the rocket fuel to the nonsense of the NBA. Like they are the rocket fuel. It's not just they contribute, like they drive the engine. It's it was just incredible. Um but back to the to the earlier point about all of it, you know, when Kyrie was coming back from rehabbing the knee, we were actually in Dallas for the national championship game and Kyrie and LeBron, they would not get off the floor. So practice ends, and and they went to Mo's place because Mo has an academy in Dallas, and so they were trying. And you know, FSO did like a little feature on it. Um, so they're talking to Mo. Mo Mo holds court and like does everything that he loves about the academy, and then he's like giving a tour, and then like there's where the washing machine is. That's where they wash uniform and like all this stuff. Like so, he gives the entire tour, and they're still out there. Kyrie and LeBron are still out there shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting. And that's when Blatt was still the coach because at first guys were like, they were kind of annoyed and, but they weren't going to say anything because it's, it's LeBron, it's Kyrie and LeBron. What are you going to say? And, um, and, but then like, I remember, I think it was Sasha Khan was like getting annoyed first, which I mean, you're Sasha Khan and, and, and Verjao, 
Andy was laughing at him like he doesn't get it like he doesn't know yet like this is what it's like this is life with the bronze this is what you do sometimes you sit around and wait you know not to mention everyone else is off the floor while the two best players on the team are still on the floor shooting let's set that aside for a minute and they're the ones getting annoyed uh but it, i mean this went on for probably an hour and it got to the point where ty came ripping back in as they were finally finishing up ty Lue came storming back in and he's like cussing out lebron like man this is rude get your ass out of here. like let's go you're holding everybody up we gotta go let's go and LeBron was like, all right, man, like, settle down. Not in front of the media. It was just me, Dave, and Joe. And I think Haynes, Haynes was there, too. And he's like, not in front of the media. And <laughs> I asked him about it later, like, the next day. I asked LeBron about that. It was uh, after they played the Mavericks. And I just, we were talking about, like, that moment and what, why, why he stayed out there so long. And he said, I, I forget the exact quote. I might have put it in the book. I'd have to look it up. But it was something to the effect of, I'll never leave him. If he's out there working, I want him to know I'm going to be out there alongside him. And I mm -hmm. want all those guys to know that we've got this because there's going to come a moment where they're going to need us. And I want them to know that we've got this. And talk about foreshadowing. That's exactly how it went just a couple of months later. Uh, was obviously, you know, they needed both of those guys in that moment. And, and LeBron always wanted that. He always wanted guys around him. He always wanted guys around him he could trust and count on. And, you know, I wrote when he left that he left because he got to the point where he had to do it all by himself. You know, like, no matter how hurt he was, he couldn't come out of a game. And, right. and he was so, you know, jealous, for lack of a better term, that when Steph gets hurt, Steph can take all the time he needs to, to get himself right and get his body right and come back because the Warriors had enough. And LeBron was never in that position. He just felt like toward the end, he had to do everything. And he couldn't, he couldn't sit. He couldn't rest. But he, he craved for that to have. You see it this year with, you know, leading the league in the assist. When he had AD playing alongside him, he, wants, he doesn't like carrying the whole load. He doesn't like shouldering everything. Now he wants the ball in his hands. He wants to control. Like he wants to dictate the terms. But he doesn't want to feel like he has to do everything, every possession, every minute of the game. So I think he welcome the opportunity for Kyrie to grow into that. That's the reason he came back. He came back in large part because of what a talent Kyrie was. And, mm -hmm. and, and he sort of knew that he could become this player. That's when, you know, I wrote an entire book about it, but that was really watching Kyrie flourish his rookie year is really when the Cavs kind of put this whole thing together of, we might have something here. We might be able to, if we do this right, we might be able to get him back and, and, and really have something special here. And a lot of that was built around the talents that Kyrie was. So yeah, he had, a, he did have a lot of bad habits to break and I'm, I'm still not sure they broke them all. And I think Kyrie would tell you that, that he had a lot of bad habits and, and he felt like he was doing what was asked of him early on in his career, you know, to, to dominate the ball and to score, score, score. And, and it was, it was a hard adjustment when you go from the trash team to all of a sudden being a contender overnight, that's a tough transition to make. Um, especially for someone as young as him who really wasn't accustomed to winning. I mean, yeah, he went to Duke, but he barely played. And so he didn't have a lot of vets around him. Right. Which it, it seems like the Cavs have kind of learned from that mistake where we, we got to have some veterans in the locker room. Otherwise, yeah, you're right. when we try to start winning, these guys aren't going to have those habits. That's 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 100% right. And I've written that a couple times this year. Of, it was like a daycare the first time around where Kyrie and Dion were ready to kill each other. And they had nobody – and that's why – you know, that's why I pounded all year long that the Cavs have to figure something out with Tristan because Tristan's exactly what you need in the locker room now 
that they did not have the first time. You know, Anthony yeah. Parker's a great guy, but he's not a guy who's going to he's not a vocal leader who's gonna grab by his by the grab a guy by the back of the neck. And the same with Andy Verigel and Antoine Jameson looked like mm-hmm. he was in Shawshank. He, he he was he was retired for a long oh time. Oh my god, he couldn't get out of here fast enough. He announced the day after the last game of the season, I'm out. Like was- I, I can't tell if he hated being in Cleveland more than Luel Dang did, but they were they were pretty neck and neck. They were well, I would say Antoine wins that because he was stuck here longer. He was here Fair. for the entire season. Luol was only stuck here for a couple months. But it's <laughs> but it's the same era. You know, these are veteran guys who've been around the league who understand what it takes to win, and they got here and they're like, Oh my god, what what is going mm-hmm. on? And again, it goes back to the Cavs. They're just weird. They're weird. And they were really they, they weird. are very weird. Yeah. I, I mean, they fired they fired a coach midway through the season where they won a championship. And one thing I I think we both uh, strongly agree with you that Tyron Lue is underrated. And it's so great to see him now where he he's looking healthy on the mm-hmm. sideline, and you can see the toll that everything took on. That is so noticeable. He looks so much better than he ended up looking. Thank God for that. Our conversation with Jason Lloyd will be back after a brief message from our sponsors. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, betonline.ag, still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on. Or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. All are open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. And if you're into props and entertaining betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. Visit their website today and join for a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Can you kind of speak towards the command that he had? Like, obviously, it helped that while they were frustrated with Blatt, they would go to Lou, uh, something that we've kind of seen repeat itself now. But yep. just being able to take over midway through a season to have the the kind of the strength to stand up to LeBron in this series when he needed to, I, I think his out of time and out plays have, have always been underrated. Absolutely, there, there was a couple good ones. I, I think he drew up one in this game, start the second quarter for Richard Jefferson to get a baseline dunk. I'm gonna say this: that was a heck of an after timeout play that they ran. And Mike, you mentioned it before. J.R. Smith making a concerted effort to drive the ball, and then he just dropped it to Richard Jefferson. Can you speak to kind of the command that Ty did have over this locker room and and how he was able to get the reins in such a short amount of time? Ty never wanted this job. He never wanted the job. And they had asked him, they had come, they had approached him three or four times about taking over. They wanted to fire Blatt and they wanted to take over. And he kept telling them no. (laughs) And when they were on a West Coast trip in LA and Dan wanted Ty to meet him in his hotel room to try and convince him. And Ty would not even go to his room because Ty said, Ty said, how's that going to look? If someone sees me coming out of the owner's hotel room, that's not going to look good. So like everyone who thinks, and there's still, I I think it went away, but there was, I I know at the time there's a lot of people who felt like Ty was trying to backstab David and take the job. Nothing could be further from true. That is completely false. Like Ty didn't want this job because of everything that we're talking about. the difficulty of, of coaching LeBron and just the dysfunction of the entire organization. And finally it got to the point, if I recall correctly, I think I have this right. 
Griff and Doc shared an agent. Hmm. And Griff called him. It was an it, it, it was an agent that was involved. I can't remember whose it was, but it was an agent that was involved. And Griff called him and and said to tell Doc convince Ty to take this job. And so he did. So Doc called Ty and said, they are going to fire this man. This is happening. You need to take this job. It's a good job. Take the job and do the job. And that's finally what convinced him because Doc said, if, if you don't take it, they'll find somebody else because he is getting fired. You can't protect them anymore. They are firing. And Doc told me it was really odd because the Clippers came to town and Doc knew Blatt was getting fired like the next day. So the Clippers come to town <laughs> to play that game and he knows Blatt's getting fired. So Doc's like, it was a weird time for me. You know, it was, it was awkward for him to be in Cleveland right around then knowing what was going on. So Ty never wanted right. a job, but Ty was always the guy that like, I've written this before. Ty was the break glass in case of emergency because God bless David Blatt. Nobody wanted him to like, Outside of Dan Gilbert, Dan's the only one who wanted him to have that job. Right. Because I remember, you, you know, he was supposed to be Steve Kerr's lead assistant. So, mm -hmm. and he calls, so Black calls Kerr and says, Hey, I have this opportunity to interview for the Cavs job. And Steve was like, Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Interview. It's a good experience for you. Go ahead. You have, yeah, that you have my blessing. And then Black calls him however long later and said, Hey, they offered me the job. It's Kurt was like, what? <laughs> they, they, they did what? <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> like, See right you, pal. Yeah. yeah. So everybody was, and the, like, that was a total damn move. And everyone in the front office was like, kind of knew that this was going to blow up at some point. So they paid Ty $2.1 million, which I know is the highest paid assistant in the league. He may have been, I haven't been able to confirm this. This is a hard thing to confirm. I think he was the mm -hmm. highest paid assistant coach in league history, but I know he was the highest paid for that year. And I even asked well, him. Well, you certainly don't hear the number thrown out that much for assistant coaches. Exactly. 2.1 is an absurd amount because J.B. Bickerstaff was making 1.6 this year, and that was high. Like, that was probably <laughs> put him two or three. I think Jay Kidd is the highest paid assistant in the league this year, but J.B. was up there. And right. it was very, you know, in hindsight, it's very similar. Like, they did the exact same thing all over again. But for Ty, for 2.1, you know, we're talking five years ago to be making 2.1 was absurd money for an assistant coach. And I even asked him when he first took over, like, why did you, what brought you to Cleveland? Why did you come here? Like, they paid me. Like, they gave me, they gave me a lot of money. That's why I came here. So, um, so this was always the plan was Ty was the break glass in case for emergency because sooner or later, this is, going, this is not going to work. And, you know, like, I, I remember talking to people at the Warriors the first year of the finals when they said, cause everybody knows everybody else's play calls by, by June. There are no secrets in the NBA. So Blatt would call out a play from the bench and the Warriors would tell me, man, Bron just comes down and runs whatever he wants. Like he's not even paying attention to whatever Blatt says. So, right. and, and there was, I mean, there were so many other, you know, I think, I think it was New Orleans. I think we we're in New Orleans and LeBron was at down at the other end and Blatt was on his bench and he's yelling out to LeBron screaming his name and LeBron would not turn around. Black got basically to like the half court line and pass yelling for LeBron. LeBron would not turn around. David basically tucked his tail between his legs, walked back to the bench and told Ty to go out there and get him. Ty takes two steps on the floor and yells and LeBron turns right around. Like that's what, <laughs> that's what we were dealing with. That's what we were dealing with here for a year and a half. So, and, and that, 
again, Portland, here we go, Portland again. So year one, Portland, LeBron's standing in the corner watching Dion and Kyrie dribble themselves dizzy. Year two, we're back in Portland. I had skipped the Christmas game, uh, Cavs-Warriors on Christmas Day. Which was a bloodbath. Yeah, yeah well, I, ugly. I skipped that game because it's Christmas. I don't spend it with my kids. And it was a back-to-back. So they're at Portland on the 26th. So I land in Portland at like, I don't know, 2 o'clock local time. And I'm already, before the game, I'm getting texts that like, it's not good. Like, this is not good. And they basically played that game under protest, the Cavs did. Again, just another horrible effort. They get absolutely destroyed. I think I'd have to go back and look. Like Lillard Dame that didn't game. play, right? Yes. Yeah. Dame and McCollum didn't play. It was like a real the dregs of the Blazers yes. roster yes. ran them off the floor. Just blew them off the floor. It wasn't even close. And I remember talking to someone in the organization in the Cavs organization who was like, They're gonna fire this man. They have to fire this man. Like they, they, he's he's lost him. And I remember like just my head spinning, like, how did we get to this point? Because it was never good. It was never good with Black. But like, how did we get to this point this fast that it that they it was a it was an anarchy? And I remember talking to Griff in the locker room after Portland and, and David was over in the visiting locker room. He had his arms folded, he was looking down at the ground, he was over by the coach's office. And I said, I think I said, like, you can fire him. Like, you you gotta fire him. Are you firing him? He's like, nope. <laughs> and I said, Oh, I said they're pissed. That's how I started. I said, these guys are pissed. He goes, yep. And I said, are you going to fire him? He goes, nope. And I remember talking to uh, JJ. I was talking to James Jones in the locker room after, after Portland. And it's one of those things where it's like, you can't miss. On a story like that, you can't miss. And the Cavs are in first place. And if I write, Cavs, you know, Cavs hate Blatt, team is considering firing Blatt, that's like a bomb out of left field. And you can't write that unless you are 100% correct. And frankly, I didn't know if Griff would have the balls to fire him because it's hard to fire coaches in first place. Took you to the finals year before. I remember the controversy before the All-Star game about who would coach the Exactly. Yeah. So and so I I went to JJ and I'm like, listen, y'all got one more chance. They were going to Phoenix after that. And I said, if you lose to Phoenix, I'm writing this. And I need, like, I need you on the record talking about this. And so I went back and forth a little bit with JJ on that. And then they won, they beat Phoenix, but it was an ugly win. It was really ugly, but they won. I remember that one. It was just terrible. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, I'm not going to write this, but I'm going to monitor it. Like, well, let's monitor the situation and let's see. And then they wound up firing them. I think, I can't remember now. I think it was like a week later, maybe. Uh, a week or two they got blown out by the Warriors. Then they played the Clippers, which was the game you referenced. Yep. And then I think he was gone. And then he was gone. So, and I mean, in hindsight, yeah, I should have wrote what I had after Portland. But again, you can't write that. You you got to be a hundred percent. And if they don't have the guts to fire them, then then I look awful. So I just I just didn't write it. Uh, and, and then they wound up doing it. So that was a really long winded way to say how did Ty command the locker room? I think the the former player thing was big with him and Ty Ty has the ability to, and I, I just read this somewhere and it's so true. I can't remember who, who just said this, but Ty has the ability to say mean things to you without you getting mad at him. Like he has the ability to, he <laughs> Justin can, does that with me a lot. 
Yeah. <laughs> but it's a could, gift. But he, yeah, he could like say things that should be hurtful or insulting to you, but you just, you respect the guy and you like the guy so much and he's such a good person that you just go with it. And, you know, go back to game seven of, this, of the 16 series where he told LeBron, like, I need more out of you. I got to get more out of you. You aren't giving me enough. And LeBron was basically like, screw you, dude. Like, look at everybody else in here. Why are you coming at me? And then he goes around to JJ and David Jones and they're like, hey, man, you said you want to be coached hard. How are you going to respond? Here, here you go. So, yeah. and, and Ty just has that ability to connect with guys and to, to reach people and to get them to, to, to bring, Ty was at his best in the postseason. Like that, he would give these guys enough rope during the regular season. There was the Napa trips and, you know, there was some, there was a lot of nonsense and he would give them a lot of rope during the regular season. But when the postseason came, he had their full attention. He could snap them to attention. He had, he could dig in as a coach and lock in on one team and really set a game plan. He was at his best in the postseason, And I think that's what makes him such a great coach. Yeah. Uh, he was genuinely a very underrated tactician. I think like we talked about this in another podcast that he, he wasn't prideful. Like he, he was more interested in getting results than right. getting it done his way. And I just think that's, that's really the sneaky thing about Lou that people will forget is he didn't care if it looked bad that they left Lance Stevenson open by 20 feet. Oh, he wanted uh, he Lance, knew Lance wasn't going to make him. Oh, yeah. He uh, wanted Lance to shoot. He wanted Lance to make the first one because he knew the next six were going up right after he made the first one. Yeah. So he was fine with, with all that. But, but if you go back and think about that 2016 series, I think it was his grandmother was battling cancer that, that spring. And, and there was so much pressure on him. And he knew uh, everything that was at stake. And, you know, maybe he doesn't get the job. If they lose that series, maybe they fire him. Uh, Dan Gilbert loved Tom Thibodeau for years. He had infatuation with Thibodeau and there are a couple other coaches. So, you know, maybe they move on from Ty if he doesn't, if, if they don't deliver and, and, you know, Griff put a lot on the line by firing a coach who was in first place. And, and you know, I remember talking to someone in the organization who's like, at least now we got a chance after Blatt was fired. Like we had no chance before that, at least now, you know, we've got a shot. And, and that, what a, what a ballsy move that was to, to fire Blatt and to, and to give Ty the job. Uh, at the time that they did it. And uh, it's just, you know, we saw it with, with Beeline this year. This, this franchise has an ability to age its coaches. And <laughs> they damn near killed Ty a couple of years ago and all the health problems that he had. And you're right, he looks so much better now. He's in so much better health and so much better shape. And he was really struggling that last year. You know, me and Joe and Dave had kind of known, he had kind of confided in us privately that he was having health problems. But, you know, it's there, that there's a lot. You can't just write that when, when a coach no. tells you, you no. know, you have, to, yeah. you have to sit on that. So in a way, you're, you're sort of protecting him a little bit. But it got to the point where we told, you know, I talked to one of the members of the media relations staff. And I'm like, listen, we have to write this. Like, we, we can't keep avoiding this. When he's leaving the game at halftime and not returning, we have to write this. And, uh, and then that's when he took the leave of absence was, was right, right after that. I think it was Orlando, uh, when he was sick at Orlando and, and then he left was, shortly. I after. remember the bulls game. I actually covered that maybe bulls that game was at the it. UC and he left at halftime of that one because Boylan did post game. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was Chicago. I can't remember now they're all running together. Well, just a little snippet of, of Ty to tell you the kind of person that he is. Um, when, he was in bad health when he was, you know, really struggling with his health. Maybe I'm thinking Orlando because we were in Orlando. Uh, we had, it was a back-to-back Orlando, Minnesota at Orlando home against Minnesota. So we were at Orlando in February of 18 and 
my dad basically died during the game. Like he mm-hmm. coded, uh, he had a stroke on the couch at his house during the Minnesota game. I remember and, you writing about it. Yeah. And so I left the game like early first quarter. My wife calls me and says, I, I think this is it. You, you've got to come. So I left the game the first quarter. And that night, Ty called me in the emergency room like at midnight. And wow. Ty called just to see what's going on. How's your dad? How are you? Are you okay? Is there anything I can do? And I remember having it like you could set aside the, the professional journalist coach relationship. It was two guys about the same age having a conversation where I'm telling a man, I'm in staying in the ICU watching my dad die. Like, you've got to take care of this. This shit ain't worth it. Like, you've got to get your health under control. And you've got to get a handle on this because this is not worth it. And that was such a powerful moment to me. And it showed me, like, the kind of guy that he was. Uh, I've had nothing but a high respect for Ty. Before that, during that, since then, I spent probably 45 minutes or an hour with him in the locker room this year when the Clippers came back. Um, he didn't, he didn't want a lot of fanfare during that trip in he tried not to do a lot of media, but we just sat in the locker room for, there was, there was a, a coach's room down like a, just a, a one-off office across from the, from the Clippers locker room. And we sat there so long that he missed his coach's meeting. It was like, <laughs> se- it was like a seven o'clock game. Clippers like, were fine. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they, they, they did just fine that night. But it was like a 7.30 game, and I, I forget now. I think it was like 6.30. He's like, shit, I got to go. I'm late for the meeting. So That's it was, awesome. It was just so good to see him and to uh, catch up with him. He'll be fine. Ty will be a head coach again in this league. He's going to have a lot of success in this league for a long time. Well, he's got some lifelong fans uh, on this podcast. I do want to take us back to the game. We're running low on time. There are Sorry, a few things we've got. Oh, oh, no, we love it. This is uh, – I, I, I – it's so fun to get this kind of inside information that, you know, like Justin, and I always say mm-hmm. like we're, we're a podcast with a podcaster based in Columbus and one in Winnipeg. Yeah. And, and, and we don't, and, and we very much know our lane. It's a, okay. This you, you got the people that actually know what they're talking about. We, we try to add some color and, and enjoy the insanity that is this team. But uh, <laughs> we, we really, really do appreciate the insight here. This, yeah. this is fantastic. But with that said, we have to talk about the Andrew Bogut injury because this yeah. is when this is when the wheels started coming off for yep. them. What I forgot and what this rewatch series has done for us is it gives you – you kind of forget all the context that led to everything. In game four, Bogut went up for a lob and Tristan decked him in midair. Mm-hmm. And he went down hard on his leg. I don't even remember that. Yeah. yeah I mean, his, I his, knee, that. his knee buckled the wrong way and it was the same knee. For a second, I thought – did I get this wrong? Did he get hurt in game four, not game five? So game five happens. The contact on in uh, upon the rewatch didn't seem as bad as I remembered it being. JR rolled and, into him, right? JR yes. rolled into his knee, if I yes. remember. He he kind of yeah, he kind of hit like his midsection. He, he didn't hit the knee directly, and it, his leg just kind of went down. JR Smith drives past Barnes, gets inside, shot blocked by Bogan. Bogan is really hurt grabbing his left knee. As they come up the floor, it's a four-on-five. Bogut's still down. They need to take a foul. Rewatching that, because I thought he made contact directly with the knee, and he didn't really. And and I remember... I was not thinking he was out for the series, for sure. And they didn't rule him out. Doris Burke came back in the third quarter saying that the Warriors were still hoping that he would still be able to play at some point in the game. It was just getting treatment, but he was out for the series. Yeah, And, and you know what's interesting is everyone was so obsessed with the death lineup, but... Bogut was so important for this Huge. team, and you could and you Huge. could even see it in the second half because Kyrie was scoring at the rim 
with complete ease because they had James Michael McAdoo. Something else that I wanted to note about this that the Bogut injury led to that I found really interesting is, so we all talk about game seven. We talk about how uh, crazy it is that uh, he put Azili back out there, that he put Vergeau back out there in the fourth. Steve Kerr, that is. Yep. Um, and it, it, it's funny. We're recording these podcasts out of order. And I mentioned this, that, hey, maybe nowadays he would have played Barnes at the five. He played Barnes at the five in this <gasps> game. <laughs> That's crazy. It's, it's wild to me that he didn't go back to that in game seven and instead stuck to his guns and played conventional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the Bogut injury was huge. You know, I remember talking to Griff about that when I was writing the book and Griff saying that it was like a war of attrition and Bogut was was a much bigger loss for the war. Now, listen, Cavs fans aren't going to feel sorry for him. It's Andrew Bogut. They lost Kyrie and Kevin the year before. So, you know, it's apples and watermelons here. But at the same time, for what Bogut meant to them, meant to that team and meant to that lineup, uh, it was huge. And Griff said, like, it was a, it was a, it was a war of attrition that it they took – and the Cavs just won the war of attrition, that the Bogut injury really took a lot out of them. And it took so much out of them in six that they didn't have as much for seven. Like, five took so much out of them, they didn't have as much for six. And then six took more out of them for seven. And mm-hmm. that just kind of struck with stuck with me all these years later. I wish I could remember the exact quote from Griff. But he really thought that that – the bogut play was was huge and and yeah it messed with their lineups so much uh, i think the warriors knew i think they were slow playing that and i don't blame them i think they knew how injured he was but they didn't want to tip their hand that he couldn't come back um ah gotcha but I, that's just that's just my guess uh but mm-hmm. yeah that was, that was that was a huge play and oh actually i just flipped open the book and i think i actually found the quote uh this is this is Griff talking to me for the book. Uh, Draymond being suspended fueled the whole thing. That's really what helped us. The you know, he's talking about the email he sent. The email had Jack to do with it. If I send the email and Draymond's not suspended, I don't look very good right now. I don't know that I necessarily think it would have been over in five, but they would have had they wouldn't have had the same fractured effort thereafter. He said Draymond being out of the lineup that day created the opportunity for us to win that day, but it also hurt them a little bit moving forward. This is the one I was looking for. They had to use up more of what they had left. The finals are always a war of attrition, and we won the war of attrition. Draymond being out and them having to pick up the pieces around him took more out of their other guys, so they had less in the tank for game six and seven. Uh, and, and so I think that goes along with it. And, you know, one other thing that we didn't touch on that I had kind of forgotten until I, I was kind of skimming through a little bit of the game today. They wore their t-shirt jerseys, which they hate. I was, this is on my list. This is on my list, Jason. That's of, of stray observations. Is Breen yeah. actively calls it out. He goes, whoa, they're wearing their sleeve jerseys. We couldn't believe it. I remember, you know, me, Joe, and David Haynes looking at each other like, they're doing what? And they go with a new uniform look with the sleeves. I'm always interested. Players are so superstitious as their coaches. Whose decision is that? You never know. As a player, you try to have any advantage possible. I do like the all-black making a statement. You know, remember, this is the year LeBron LeBron hated that jersey. He ripped the jersey. He ripped, he ripped, he ripped the sleeves. Yes. He ripped the sleeves because I texted the uh, Cavs PR – or not Cavs, uh, the league's PR guy, Tim Frank. I texted Tim, and I'm like, hey, you've got a problem. 
he he ripped those jerseys literally and and in the uh in the media as well like oh it, yeah it was, on, on a national tv game he rips the seams because he hates how constrictive they are and i texted tim and i'm like are you watching you have a major issue like lebron so, is tearing your jersey so the Cavs and, ended up so they win wearing those jerseys uh, yeah. Then they wear them the rest of the series. Do you remember, ask, did you ask them about that? And like, what was their rationale behind wearing these jerseys they didn't even like? Was it? Well, they didn't wear them in six, they but they, they, they wore them on yeah, the they road. Wore the yeah. white, they, wo- they wore they the white at the, home, yeah. I think. They wore the blacks in seven, yeah. though. Yeah, they wore the blacks yeah. in, in five and seven. I think it did come up, but man, I can't remember the answer now. I can't remember the answer. Yeah, I, I, it's just such. It's funny because it's, I, it's, it's so outrageous. iconic. It's so iconic to me because I know they wore the sleep jerseys in seven. I had forgotten until Breen was like absolutely floored that they were wearing them. That that was controversial. Yes, Le- LeBron hate. I can't stress enough how much he hated the t-shirt jerseys. Hated them. Hate. He felt like they were I, too restrictive in his shoulders and his biceps. He hated them. And in fact, when he brought them back, and you could probably notice if you look. Anytime they wore them after he ripped them, and I think for that final series especially, his were a little bit looser. That they were, yeah. they were. It was they made not a, as they, tight. they adapted yeah. them for sure. Yeah, yeah, they made his a little bit so it wasn't so constrictive through the shoulders. Yeah. The other thing I forgot about the, this game was this was the end of Delhi. Like he oh. did not play for the rest of the series. He was benched for Mo Williams because he picked up three fouls in he two minutes. He got cooked the game. so bad in this yeah. first quarter. My 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 note says oof Delhi minutes. That's all I wrote. <laughs> he was never the same again. <laughs> no, <laughs> except for that one magical night this season. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, just recently. Yeah, before they shut everything down. Uh, yeah, man, he was uh, he was awful in this game. And on the other hand, I wrote a note. Why wasn't Leandro Barbosa playing like twenty five to thirty minutes a game in this series? Oh, he was. So he good. was so good every time he was on the floor. And when Kirk couldn't find a guy who could stay on the floor for him by the end of the series, it was surprising that it. He didn't go to Barbosa because between him and Livingston, both of them just felt so steadying for them, no matter what the circumstance. Yeah, just look, Barbosa only played 10 minutes that night. Yeah, um, and in game four, he was excellent, I believe. Maybe it was game three. Either way, he, he was mm-hmm. just very He, he didn't play and, in three and four. That was one yes. thing that they brought up in the broadcast was he hadn't played in Cleveland. And, and he, was, uh, he was good later on in the series, but it, it is surprising considering how consistent he was. Yeah, he was, he was just like that backcourt, that bench backcourt was just – they gave the Cavs so many problems because the Cavs didn't like to defend on the perimeter. And I think part of their brains wanted to shut off when Curry or Clay wasn't out there. Yeah. Like they were like, oh okay, yeah. And those two, yeah. Vergeal playing well in this game also probably bit oh, them in man. the ass a little Van, later in the series because yep. <laughs> oh shit, Van Gundy could not hide his disgust for Vergeal because Vergeal <laughs> flops like three times. Yeah, and yep. at one point, one. Van, yeah. at one point, Van Gundy says, "Stand up and play." I'm like, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Iguodala to Vergeal drives reverse and is fouled as he goes crashing to the floor, holding his face. And to me, it looks that's that's two that's, shots. You've got to appreciate Verajal's acting ability, though. That's Denzelish right there. Well, when they when they went to the replay center, Javi said that Verajal, it's not a flagrant, and he might win an Oscar. Now tonight, Steve, this one did make contact with the head. Not enough for a flagrant foul. Enough for an Oscar or you know something like that, but not a flagrant foul. There was a That's lot funny. of disgust for Andy in this game. But with that said, I don't know if you have any more stray observations you want to get to, Jason. If you don't, I would like to just ask you before we wrap here, 
uh, just to give you like what you're going to remember about covering this series, because obviously to us, it's the greatest finals ever. And to a lot of people, it is. So kind of just what, what are you going to take away? What are you going to be telling your, uh, your grandkids about this series? It's funny that like the things that stand out to me are weird and they're not the things that you would probably expect me to, to say, but like, is I was the one saying all along they were going to win seven. I, I never had a doubt, never had a doubt they were going to win seven, but after it was over, Channing Fry was the first one I saw emerge from the locker room and to see the goggles on his head and the holding the champagne bottle, it was like, Oh my God, this, this really happened. They just, they just did this. They, they really just did this. And I remember, I remember uh, my dad obviously was still alive then, but he was, he was in the ER and they had, they had taken him in and he was, he was bleeding internally and they couldn't figure out where it was coming from. They couldn't figure out what was what was wrong with them? And this was the day before game seven, I guess it was. And I had a flight in three hours and it's like, well, am I supposed to stay or am I supposed to, am I supposed to miss game seven? Like, I can't, I can't go get on this plane if my dad's going to die. And I remember him like grabbing my hand, looking at me and he said, you get on that plane. And I wrote about this when he died. He said, you get on right. that plane and you go to work because that's what husbands and fathers do. We go to work get on the plane and go, I will be fine. And sure enough, he was fine. And he, he watched game seven from, from his couch at, at home. Uh, and so that was like a, a big emotional thing for me of just like, what am I supposed to do? And uh, on Father's Day, no less. Yeah, on Father's Day. That's right. And I remember it's, it's goofy the way that it's, the media is set up and the, the, the shuttle buses leave, like they stop running the shuttle far too soon than they should after a finals game. So by the time we're done with all of our interviews and everything, and, and you know, when they win a championship, there's so many pictures they have to take. And uh, there's so many obligations that by the time you finally finish uh, the, the media room and everything else, it's like the last shuttle is, is running. So we packed up and took the shuttle. And I remember pulling out of Oracle and somebody on the bus was playing U2, It's a Beautiful Day. And just like, I just have that stuck in my head. And I remember thinking about so many, all the people of Cleveland and, oh my God, they've waited so long for this and, and to finally be able to have this moment. Uh, and, and I didn't, I went back to the hotel and I wrote until the sun came up. I don't think I posted final thoughts until like 8 a.m. maybe East Coast <laughs> time. It was like five or six in the West. And so I literally stayed up all night writing and we were in uh, like uh, makeshift hospitality room outside like just in a lobby of the Marriott and with a bottle of wine just writing all night and then I remember going to my room as the sun was coming up and looking out over San Francisco thinking like life has changed forever for everybody in Cleveland like <laughs> this is a new day life will never be the same and it sounds so dramatic but it's 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 true that they they you know people that went their whole lives without a championship finally had a championship to celebrate and and the parade of course i'll always remember the parade and it's funny because everybody else has like these wonderful glowing memories of the parade and what a wonderful day it was and the parade was one of the worst days of my life because i was doing stuff with uh channel three with the wkyc with the nbc affiliate for the parade and we had ropes passes uh every outlet got one ropes pass to be inside the ropes for the parade and i remember thinking i'd be better off staying at the channel three perch outside i think it was the hilton or something like that and being able to watch everything from high above rather than walk the parade route and that was like one of the worst decisions i've ever made in my life <laughs> so i gave 
uh, Marla Ridenauer, I gave her my ropes pass. And so it's uh, Haynes and Joe and Dave and Marla. And Joe gets LeBron to tell him, I'm coming back next year. And this is right before he climbs up on the float. And I mean, it's not, it's, it's kind of understood at that point. Like, yeah, of course he's going to come back. They just won a championship, but it's still significant news. So Joe has, he's the first one to get that LeBron's coming back next year. And then Dave confirms it. And I'm like, they're, they're loading up the parade route. I'm kind of at the end. I'm like a mile away and there's 1.3 million people separating me from them. There's zero chance I'm going to get to this to like ask him that. So I'm texting Marla. Cell coverage is bad. I'm texting Marla like, you got to get him to tell you this. And Marla tried getting it out of him. And because LeBron didn't have the same relationship with her, he wouldn't tell her. He's like, oh, I got plenty of time to, to we'll worry about that later. I was like, no! <laughs> so, so like the whole parade is just dreadful for me because this is just like torture because I, I don't have this confirmed yet. And so they do the parade and I'm like, I, I have myself positioned after they do the whole podium thing. I'm positioned to where I can catch LeBron as he's coming off and I can get him to tell me this. And he comes off, he's holding the trophy. They blow the confetti. It's the big moment with him and Jim Brown. Jim hands him the trophy. The confetti blows. LeBron comes off the stage and I'm sprinting over to get him. And he sees me and he like gives me a thumbs up. And I'm like, no, I need, <laughs> like, I need you to tell me this. And, and he was too far away and he was gone and I couldn't get him. So I had to like, again, this is just a little quirky, little stupid reporter thing where I couldn't write that he, I had it confirmed. I had to cite, you know, reports and all this other stuff. Um, but the, the, the parade was just torturous for me. It was hours and hours and hours of agony and torture because we couldn't get it confirmed because LeBron told Dave and he told Joe, but he wouldn't tell Marla because he didn't have the same relationship. He told Haynes, he's told everybody except Beacon. Right. He wouldn't tell the Beacon. So th that's my memory of the parade. Everyone else loved it. <laughs> it was horrible for me. Uh, but yeah, it's, it was, what a fun year. Uh, it was, it was such a, it was, and, and one other one, when I was flying home uh, at, at, from San Francisco, I took a late flight because uh, I knew that, you know, it was going to be a lot of work and everything else. So I arrived really late back in the town. And I just remember thinking on the flight, like what an honor and a privilege it was to walk alongside this team and document history and have this, this seat for one of the greatest, the greatest, you know, team Cleveland had seen in 50 years. And, and it was not, it was, it, it was a privilege that I did not take lightly. It was a responsibility I did not take lightly. And it was, it was such an honor to be there. And I just hope, you, you just hope that you do the job to the best of your ability. And you just hope that people will appreciate and remember, even if it's just one thing that you wrote or one thing that you observed, you just try and, and give them, listen, that the team fulfilled them. You just try and supplement that. You're just trying to pull back the curtain a little bit and give them a piece that they otherwise wouldn't have had. And you just hope that you, that you did the job well and that you gave that team what it deserved. Well, Jason, it's this has been an absolute honor and a privilege to have you on. Uh, for all our listeners, if you've enjoyed this, I strongly recommend that you do pick up a copy of The Blueprint. It's still available on Amazon. I, I have a copy. I loved it. And this, being a Cavs fan for a very long time, doing what, whatever the hell it is that we, we do here, <laughs> obviously we, we've read 
tons of stuff that you've written uh, over the years, and, and this really does mean a lot for you to come on and be a little nostalgic with us. This uh, this has been an absolute privilege. Yeah, it was fun for me too. I didn't think, man, we, what did we do? About an hour and 15 minutes? I wasn't expecting that, but it was, it was fun, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, I get I, in to start I, telling old stories and I could go all night. It's fun. Well, we had a lot of fun listening to them, and uh, it's it's really cool to get to mm-hmm. learn what was happening behind the scenes while we were not in Cleveland. We just really appreciate you being on with us. Anytime, <laughs> yes. guys. It, yeah, it, it means a lot. So again, to all our listeners, check out The Blueprint. Make sure you have a subscription to The Athletic. You have a lot of free time on your hands. Go do that right now. <laughs> three months free right now, right? Three months free, that's right. 90 days free hey. to, to kind of check it out and see what we're all about. No, no excuse to not pick that up. And if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by leaving a rating, leave a review, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, and help cook those books. All right. So thanks again to Jason. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to Carter. And until next time, go Cavs.